And thank you again for listening to Biospace's Weekly Roundup. I'm Lori Ellis, Head of Insights, and I'm here with Greg Skilbakken, News Editor, and Tyler Patchen, Staff Writer. Thank you both again for joining. Lori, it's great to be with you. Same. So, Greg, let's start with uh, some regulatory news that I'm sure is going to be a buzz at JPM. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, it's really the last couple of weeks uh, we've seen the Biden administration flex its regulatory muscles. And we're less than a year away from the 2024 presidential election. But based on the events of the past two weeks, I would say that the White House, CMS, FTC, uh, all the above are increasingly putting pressure on the biopharma industry. And uh, maybe it's not so surprising. Biden had promised uh, in his first term that he was going to stand up to big pharma, you know, lower prescription drug prices and limit their power. But at the same time, it seems in the last couple of weeks that there's been uh, ratcheting up of the pressure, as it were. So to recap, I mean, last week, the Biden administration announced that 48 drugs covered under Medicare Part B would be subject to inflation rebates in the first quarter of 2024. What this means is that dozens of drug makers will be required to pay inflation rebates back to CMS due to what the the White House calls price gouging. And so that was last week. The week before last, the Biden administration said it was going to issue a framework for NIH to implement so-called march-in rights and essentially take back patents of specific expensive medicines that rely on federally funded research. And again, we knew that a review was ongoing, that the administration was considering these march-in rights, as they are known, to allow the government to exercise intellectual property rights on patents developed with the use of federal funds. What's surprising is that this is really the first time ever that the government has used increasing drug costs as a reason to trigger these so-called marching rights. And that's a significant change from the stance of prior administrations. Yeah, that makes a total sense. And I do wonder, with the marching rights specifically, truly how many drugs will be affected by that? Because legally, you would think that drug development doesn't only rely on federal government funding. So I think that's going to be a very sticky area as we watch it unfold. Yeah, no, absolutely. I mean, these rules were controversial to begin with, and the administration knew that. Lobbying groups on behalf of Big Pharma are adamantly opposed to the use of this. They warn that this will hurt innovation. Of course, they raise intellectual property rights that the government, they say, doesn't have any contention on. And so we're going to see this as it goes forward. And to your point, how many drugs, how many companies will be affected, we'll see. I will tell you, that last week, we also saw the Federal Trade Commission flex its regulatory muscles. Sanofi on Monday of last week said that following a FTC administrative complaint and threat of a lawsuit, that it decided to terminate a $755 million license agreement with Mace Therapeutics. And so what's interesting is that the FTC announced their complaint and that they were going to file this lawsuit And that same day, Sanofi decided to throw in the towel. So it was just the threat of a preliminary injunction that caused uh, Sanofi to to back off on the Mays deal. And so there's no question. I mean, this is a victory for FTC chair uh, Lena Khan, essentially making good on her threat to take a closer look at smaller deals. 
which the FTC basically sees as slowing down growing monopolies. So we could potentially see more of these kinds of deals uh, fall by the wayside. That is exactly true. We've been following the drug prices, specifically with the approval of the latest two that were 2.2 and then 3.1, I think, um, million dollars. Do you think that's starting to, I want to say, even more influence the federal government to take more of an action? Yeah, I I think it's like a a perfect storm. You know, the Inflation Reduction Act uh, passed into law last year, signed into law by President Biden. It's a law that he has taken ownership of. You look at all the White House announcements of last week and the week prior, they talk about it that way, that this law is sort of Biden's record in, in terms of confronting big pharma. And I think any kind of news in terms of pricing of drugs that seems exorbitant, that seems like American taxpayers are taking on the chin, we're going to see, I think, increased activist action, whether it's CMS or it's FTC and other agencies. So, yeah, it seems to be ratcheting up. And as we enter the election year, I'm sure that political rhetoric and policies surrounding pharma will continue to rise. I would also just venture into another piece is that I think with the price tags constantly going up and seeing a bit more extreme um, that we've seen in the past, it's really, there's a scrutiny now on farmer, but there's a scrutiny on every aspect. And I think there's going to be more conversations about what type of technology are you using? Are you being efficient in your discovery? But then also in your manufacturing process, which is a lot of times where the holdup is, are you being efficient there and doing your best to keep these price tags low? So I think it'll be a catalyst. No, I was going to say, I mean, we're going to see this increase in the election year. I mean, what's interesting is nobody has kind words for big pharma. I mean, even Donald Trump uh, most recently has called for a a special presidential commission, you know, of independent minds, not bought and paid for by big pharma to investigate what he sees as a rise in chronic illness among children. I mean, this this sort of has smatterings of conspiracy theory throughout. But all of that is to say that uh, whether you're Republican or a Democrat, we're in an election year. Nobody wants to be seen as aligned with big pharma, unless, of course, you're taking political action committee contributions. That might be an area where you're willing to change your standards. That is a perfect segue to some of the plant-based medications and pharmaceuticals that are coming out, such as LSD. So I'd like to have a conversation about that now. Sure, sure. Yes. You know, obviously there's been a certain interest in, in psychedelic drugs that have been coming out, and not just for the past couple of years. But uh, most recently, uh, a New York-based biotech by the name of MindMed uh, released uh, some of the top-line results from their phase two trial of their LSD sort of base candidate known as, uh, you know, MM120. Basically, the the dosage amount that they investigated for those uh, is meant for patients in uh, who have generalized anxiety disorder. It demonstrated about a 7.6 point reduction on the Hamilton scale, basically, you know, it was shown to have some sort of effect on patients with generalized anxiety disorder. About 78% of people who took the trial had some sort of response compared to 31% in the placebo group. And yeah, this is kind of coming when the MAPS Public Benefit Corporation uh, submitted their NDA to the FDA for a therapy that's based with MDMA uh, for people with post-traumatic stress disorder. So it's kind of coming uh, at this wave when psychedelics are definitely showing to have this clinical effect. 
are seemingly positive and are kind of taking a quite a significant leap forward in this space. Yes, and it seems also the federal government has also dabbed its toes into this space as well. I believe the yes. vision the Vision Act 2023 to protect these psychedelics that are being used, correct? Yes, and certainly regulators are open to the idea. I spoke with MindMed's uh, CMO, Daniel Carlin, uh, for kind of just as a supplemental as a for a Q&A that'll be coming out later. Yeah, he was uh, particularly bullish on getting, at least having the conversations with regulators. You know, they're definitely open to this idea, at least at this point in time. Now, of course, you know, there'll be kind of other questions Will this get across the finish line? What will a phase three look like? We're kind of still in the early stages for a lot of this stuff. You know, obviously this has to be very, very controlled. It has to be in a very controlled environment. Certain, you know, heavy security measures have to be in place for for drugs like this to to be even administered. So there's a lot of a lot of nuts and bolts to it. But just kind of looking at the data and what's kind of been presented has already been uh, proven to be pretty significant. It's all very exciting. I think biopharma companies are looking at psychedelics, you know, with renewed interest uh, and anticipation. I mean, in many respects, when we talk about regulations, I feel like it's back to the future, so to speak, because in the 60s, uh, these uh, drugs were in the mainstream. Uh, There was a heavy regulatory uh, movement to to make sure that uh, these didn't get used and abused. And now I think, you know, all these decades later, uh, we're seeing some pretty big changes on the regulatory front. The FDA issued guidance in June of this year to provide general considerations to sponsors developing psychedelic drugs for the treatment of medical conditions. So it's all changing very quickly. And, you know, as Tyler mentioned, there are some companies that are working on this, particularly, you know, in the area of uh, psychiatric disorders and so forth. So it's all very exciting. So we have the psychedelics that are occurring and the federal government has already dabbed its toes in. And now we have all of the regulatory changes that Biden is putting into place. And then we also have Bluebird, which is now trying to soften the blow that it experienced in the market. And I believe, Tyler, you were following this story closely. Yes. I think coming off of you know what happened with both the Bluebird and the, the Vertex approval, obviously, Great news for Vertex. There were some people had certain questions with Bluebird Bio, but uh, last week they signed, you know, an outcomes-based quote-unquote agreement with some commercial player that wasn't named in the in the in the SEC filing, but they represent about a around a hundred million patients. Basically, Bluebird said that they're sort of you know in, in negotiations. Basically, Bluebird has secured a deal to get their new drug. Lifgenia uh, into uh, sickle cell patients. This kind of helped repair its stock price, which kind of took a beating when when the FDA approval came down, where you know the issue of cost and the black box warning was put on. But this is a measured step taken by Bluebird to actually have their drug be in patients and paid for, essentially. Yeah, I mean it, it's interesting. In a very short amount of time, Bluebird seems to have recovered, as Tyler has said, from what should have been happy news that they got an FDA approval. And yet, you know, due to the price and black box issue, they really got hammered with analysts and investors. One of the things uh, they're actually improving on is their funding as well, at least potentially, because this week they announced two funding opportunities, 
one, a public offering of its stock to raise $150 million. And then also the second funding opportunity is a uh, accounts receivable factoring agreement, as they call it, with uh, Alterna Capital Solutions. And under this deal, you know, they'll they'll get certain trade accounts receivable. In other words, you know, on potential sales of three gene therapies when these products are actually dispensed. So you're looking at combined there, the two deals raising, if it goes through as they plan, $250 million, which is, is a good amount of money. At the same time, it's important to say that Bluebird is cash strapped. When they announced third quarter results last month, you know, they talked about cash on hand, and I think it ranged from $270 million to $300 million. But they said that if they did not replenish that cash, they basically would only have enough to last them into the second quarter of 2024. So if they're able to raise $250 million at this point, they may be able to extend their runway. So then let's talk about another company that is also experiencing some loss, and largely due to the fact that COVID is really not in everyone's field of vision right now. And I believe, Tyler, you were following what's been happening with Pfizer. Yes. Um, you know, I th- we've talked about Pfizer on this podcast before, but this is just sort of the next step in in their kind of troubled year. They announced uh, on last week that their full year guidance, which is going to be around 58.5 to 61.5 billion. But the important thing is that they kind of announced another 500 million in cost cutting measures, which we've already seen. Uh, that's on top of the you know several 3.5 billion that they're looking to cut. So now it's kind of now they're looking to cut about four billion. And so far, you know, these cuts have been layoffs, certain closures, sort of in their manufacturing sphere. Um, and these layoffs and closures have been happening in the United States. They've been happening in the United Kingdom. They've been happening in Ireland. So it's more or less just kind of seeing. Well, this is kind of the next step here. It's interesting to kind of see this. You know, Pfizer was riding such a big high during the the COVID era, and granted, they're trying to make different changes over with the with the C Gen deal, with other M and A deals that they've made. But you know, it takes a while for deals to bear fruit come to fruition. So I think right now Pfizer's sort of in this holding pattern of trying to find where they can make cuts, where they can try to bring in whatever revenues they can. And unfortunately, it's just it's just not, a, you know, it's not a, I don't think it's the perfect look that they want. Now, is that going to change? I'm pretty sure they will. You know, they have plenty of plenty of products, new things coming about, but it's just kind of the way things are at this moment. It's really startling to see Pfizer struggle like this. I mean, it, it could go under a headline of, you know, how the mighty have fallen, right? Because this is a company that, you know, was among the most admired, but despite all the success they had with COVID-19 and the pandemic, they essentially overestimated future demand for its pandemic products. So this is becoming hard thing for them to manage. You know, it's a gap that has not been filled by Pipeline and its other products, uh, no matter how promising they look. It'll be interesting to watch. I mean, this is Pfizer, after all. This is the 800-pound gorilla. I mean, this is a company with revenue past $100 billion. So, you know, the whole industry is watching how they uh, manage expectations going forward. Well, thank you, Greg and Tyler, for your insights. That concludes this episode. If you have any questions, please reach out to one of us directly. 